Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis Podcast. I recently wrote an article on the analysis.news titled COVID-19, Get Ready for the Coming Storm. We're at a moment where it's possible that this economic crisis globally and in the United States will become so deep that a spontaneous resistance, a spontaneous movement, fighting for the rights of workers to defend the unemployed, urgency of climate change, we may be in a whole new political moment. The question is, are progressives, are socialists ready for it? Now joining us to talk about all of this is Vijay Prashad. Vijay is the director of Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. His latest book is called Washington Bullets, about coup d'etats in Washington. Thanks for joining me. Vijay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Paul. So I want to start the conversation with... Uh, talk about this sort of moment and somewhat debate on the left about Bernie Sanders. And it seems to me a lot of it, I'm talking about Sanders pulling out of the race and endorsing Biden. I want to start with the underlying idea, I guess, or concept of Sanders, which is Trump is the most dangerous, to quote Chomsky, the most dangerous president in history. There is a real possibility, threat, of a, a kind of overt authoritarianism, particularly in this pandemic moment, and that that is so significant, that threat, that Sanders was wise, and I believe Chomsky thinks that, and others, that he needed to endorse Biden and he needed to create a, a sort of broad front in support of Biden and then fight it out with Biden later because the Trump presidency, especially if there's a second one, is just so dangerous, both in terms of climate, in terms of potential war with Iran, and something that never gets talked about except by Chomsky and a few others like Ellsberg, uh, the threat of nuclear war. Uh, and that justifies a kind of politics that's absolutely necessary, Chomsky and others argue. What's your take? Well, you know, the first thing I'd like to say is I think that the most dangerous political force on the planet is not Donald Trump. It's actually the United States government, the ruling class in the United States and its, ambi and its ambitions. Um, the United States government, since at least the 1940s, has sought what it has by itself called preponderant power over the planet. It's an interesting phrase, preponderant power. Uh, this was a phrase used in a national security uh, document in the 1940s. And what it suggested was that the United States, its own ambition is to be the sole power in the world and everybody else must somehow be guided by the US you know, government and you know, more specifically the ruling class in the United States. And this desire, this ambition for preponderant power has led um, in many interesting directions, one of which is this massive buildup of force, whether it's nuclear weapons, the enormous military that the United States has, its uh, ability to spread its military through base structures around the world, floating bases in the, in the form of uh, aircraft carriers, 
and there is an ambition now to you know move the military force to the extent that any part of the planet can be hit by the united states in the course of an hour it shouldn't take more than an hour to strike any part of the world that's an ambition articulated directly by the pentagon so i think that inside the united states there is this debate that comes up every 4 years or so about you know this person is the most dangerous or that person is the most dangerous you know it was reagan at one point and then the democratic party rushed around saying well we've got to get rid of reagan uh, reagan is the greatest threat and then you know they put up what is it mondale uh, got slaughtered by reagan came in for a second term then you had um bush junior uh, george w bush um, very dangerous man dangerous force started an illegal war against iraq in fact began a war against the planet you know a war where you don't fight against threats but potential threats i mean extraordinary expansion of the legal right to destroy anybody and then in the middle of his presidency the democrats ran around and said he's the most dangerous force and they nominate john kerry who was slaughtered by bush and bush returned for a second term uh, then you get obama coming in as the savior but as you know when you look at obama's record as far as interventions around the world are concerned dangerous interventions around the world it wasn't as if those dangerous interventions disappeared there may have been some minor modulation a uh, slightly better tone on iran but then the united states destroyed libya and created chaos in north africa but finally you have trump imagine this you know you say can't have a worse president than reagan and then you get george w bush can't have a worse president than george w bush then you get trump and now people are running around saying you know the most dangerous person and they put up biden i mean biden is essentially mondale and kerry uh, combined uh, you know mediocre candidate to fight against this most dangerous person but of course the most dangerous person is not to my mind the best way to analyze the situation you have the most dangerous system with an ambition that needs to be questioned you know the system is this system of us imperialism which includes massive military force massive military force in the middle of all this nuclear weapons and then this very dangerous military force very dangerous system has an ambition to dominate the planet quite against um the un the united nations charter and what it stands for so i feel that this yelling and screaming every 4 years about the most dangerous person to defeat him you need to rally around a milk toast candidate put up by the democrats who you know might modulate this most dangerous system a little bit but not transform it i think this is an inadequate way to have the conversation well let me argue with you because i'm a little bit more in the chomsky camp i think I don't think there's any question the underlying system is as I said in this thing I wrote is depraved it's barbaric and so on and at the heart of it this concentration of ownership in finance capital and I just wrote this thing about BlackRock and Vanguard the asset management companies um who own military industrial sector they own the companies that make nuclear weapons they own fossil fuel and so on and the system itself imposes this discipline of maximum return on capital 
And the more and more financial sector becomes parasitical and less and less money invested in productive enterprises and more and more pure speculation, uh, the more parasitical uh, their politics gets and the more powerful the finance sector gets, the more they control the White House and Congress and such. Till now, they most of Congress, not all, but most, are paid for higher uh, people for Wall Street and other sectors of the economy. But like I said before, most every sector goes back to BlackRock and Vanguard and those kinds of companies. Okay, we know this. It's the system itself that's that's the problem. But there are real differences uh, between uh, different administrations, different sections of capital. Sometimes those differences are very significant. Uh, sometimes they're less, like take the 1930s. I think FDR was a significant difference a different force, a different kind of mindset of American capital as compared to, for example, certainly what happened in Germany or Italy. Uh, you know, the, 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 the choice of going down the road of overt coercive force of fascism against working class in, in the midst of economic crisis versus this essentially you know, social democratic approach of uh, FDR now, FDR did it to save capitalism, to save the system. I think he was kind of naive thinking that the kind of measures that he was uh, promoting uh, would lead to a you know a capitalism that had, could have the best of both worlds and all this. But I went back and just recently read some Roosevelt speeches from the 30s. And what he was advocating goes f is far left of Sanders. I mean, he advocated taking the electrical companies and turning them into public utilities, uh, heavily regulated, and and or buy them out uh, outright and turn them into publicly owned utilities. And he he had suggested that concept could be applied to other sectors of the economy. And certainly, if we were to do it now, you'd start with banking, and you turn banking into a public utility, and you'd outright nationalize some banks and 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 to weaken the power of Wall Street. But different administrations are different, and and, and I, I don't I wouldn't minimize the difference even of Obama. And if anyone knows my work during the Obama administration, I, I was very critical of almost everything. But the difference on Iran was very significant. Uh, the fact that he negotiates a nuclear deal with Iran and uh, starts to normalize relations with Iran. Uh, as opposed to Trump, who I still think I, I'd be, I'll be very surprised if he, before the elections, there isn't some kind of attack on Iran. Uh, that's a big difference, especially if you're an Iranian living there. But it's a big difference to everybody what a war on Iran could unleash, and you know that as well, or better than I do. Um, I, I, on the question of climate, the fact that four more years of Trump. Uh, is the, the to have a climate denier as president to undo even the modest stuff that Obama did, and it was modest, but it was something uh, to undo all that which he's done, and four more years of that, uh, we can't afford that. Um, to uh, have such an aggressive aggressive posture towards China, and I'm not saying Obama didn't. He had the Asian pivot, and he had you know the rhetoric, but Obama. I'm, I'm sorry, but but Trump. Uh, is is you know willing, especially if you live listen to Steve Bannon, who I think still has Trump's ear, to negotiate a real confrontation, not negotiate to uh, sorry, <laughs> to instigate a real confrontation in the South China Sea. Bannon advocates that openly. 
I, I, I do buy, it's not just that Trump the individual, it's that Trump represents a particular section of the most far-right, degenerate, uh, billionaire ideologues, criminals, militarists. And even though much of Wall Street didn't like him in the beginning, uh, Steve, Steve uh, Fink, the guy ahead of uh, BlackRock, uh, says that he, the, he, Trump fulfilled their entire bucket list. He gave them everything they wanted in terms of tax breaks and deregulation and so on. And, and, and it is a kind of cabal. The guy, Robert Mercer, the billionaire who helped elect Trump and put up the, you know, own Breitbart News and Bannon worked for him. Kellyanne Conway worked for him. Uh, this this a, a cabal of really crazy far right. Now an alliance with, with probably most of Wall Street, not all, but most. It's a very dangerous situation. And yeah, I, I, I buy that as, as no doubt Biden, who claims he wants the Sanders supporters and he's hearing them, I have no doubt he'll not be very interested in listening to progressives once he's elected. Uh, but that being said, a mass movement may arise and if Biden's the president and the target of that mass movement, um, somewhat similar to what happened in the 30s, I think that opens up some possibilities for a mass movement having some real effect on some kind of reforms that are critical, both in terms of people's lives, climate. And Biden, I'll give him credit, even though I'm, I'm, you know, I've been so critical of Obama and Biden, but particularly Obama, but I'll give him credit for a couple of things. One, he fully supported the uh, deal with Iran. And, and during the vice presidential debates, uh, when in the first time they, Obama and Biden ran, Biden said, you have to accept Iran as a regional power now. The horses left the barn, I think were his words. If you didn't, he, I think his quote was, if you didn't want Iran to be such a regional power, you shouldn't have invaded Iraq. And now you have to accept the reality of it. The second thing, it's been reported that when Obama uh, was getting pressured to put this new uh, trillion dollar investment in nuclear weapons that the uh, Republicans were pushing on him, um, Biden was against it. And Biden, Obama went ahead with it. And Biden was opposed to it, saying, don't, you, know, you don't have to make, negotiate these deals with the Republicans. Uh, Biden was first uh, dropping sanctions on Cuba. There's a, there's a certain amount of rationality reflecting a section of American capital that still has a little bit of long-term view to things. And, and I, you know, I have no, uh, what's the word, uh, expectation Biden will be anything more than another Obama unless there's a mass movement that can really uh, create a situation like there was in the 1930s. But maybe that moment is coming. Well, I mean, I think that uh, I, I mean, look, the, I'm not going to get into all the factual things because I disagree with a lot of what you said. I mean, I think if, if you look at different parts of the world, um, things don't look so different. You know, yes, on Iran, they, there were some differences, but it, it was the Europeans that brought Obama to the table. Let's be frank. Um, that was the main thing. The Europeans were having a great deal of problem. Meanwhile, Obama's attitude to Venezuela is was pretty much identical to Trump's attitude to Venezuela. He harshened, he made the sanctions much harsher. Um, 
you know, Biden has just released an advertisement about China, which is as grotesquely sinophobic as anything that Trump is saying. I mean, you know, to make these distinctions requires one, I think, to have a leap into the area of some disbelief. Um, you know, if you look at the attitude towards Wall Street, uh, the differences are so marginal as far as the rest of the world is concerned that to highlight them and to extend them and say, well, you know, there'll be a lot that will be different if there's a mass movement, that if there's a mass movement is too much to hope for. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But just to return to this, I think that there are two points here. One is, I, I, I don't think it's worthwhile to ask, is there a great difference between these candidates? I, I actually don't think so, because on many substantive things, I'm not sure there's much of a difference. Um, you know, let's also remember that at the Iraq war, uh, Biden played a terrible role. Um, you know, it was an illegal war. It was apparent to 90% of the world that this was a horrendous war and it will have terrible consequences. And the Democratic Party just went along. Biden was one of them. They were not blindfolded into the war. They went with all eyes open. Um, so on many things, you know, it's true you can say on this point or that point there are some differences. But I think what unites these people is quite significant. And I think that's important. But the second point on just that level of Biden and the election is electability. Um, you know, the Democratic Party has a remarkable ability, except perhaps Obama's first term, of putting up people who are basically, you know, unable to galvanize the very coalition, the very mass movement that you require. You know, what, what I'm going to talk about in a second, the importance of that mass movement. I mean, neither Mondale nor Kerry and now not Biden, none of them are going to be capable of leading the mass movement. Um, Bernie Sanders was a great uh, Hold on, hold on. Yeah. You don't think I'm suggesting that? Of course not. No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying you're suggesting it. But the fact is that one says, you know, if he's in office and if there's a mass movement to push him, it could push him in a leftward direction. Where is that mass movement going to come from in, in a society particularly, which is deeply disorganized, where, you know, for generations, trade union power has basically been uh, absorbed into the state structure. I mean, one of the interesting things about the United States, about the American capitalist class, is it basically has a relatively unlimited capacity, um, you know, to do anything. And it never has to pay the price for it. I mean, even in Europe or in Japan, there are trade unions that, you know, come out on strike and create enormous problems for the ruling class. If the cuts are too deep, you know, if the attitude of the ruling class against labor is too fierce, there is some moderate resistance, you know, and which is why in Germany they've been able to maintain some of the rights and, and um, privileges of, of workers, which they had fought for. But in the United States, basically the ruling class, whether Democrat, Republican, whatever the political character of it, has basically an unlimited ability to squeeze the population dry. And we've seen the consequences of that. I mean, you know, whereas in Britain, they actually have a language of austerity and so on. In the United States, there's not even that critical language. In South America, they call it neoliberalism. In Britain, they call it austerity. You know, they have at least a language to talk about the cuts. In the United States, is not even that language. 
um, you know, the resistance inside the United States, class resistance from workers and so on, has been relatively squashed. And that has meant, um, you know, it has provided enormous dividends uh, for the ruling elites. They've been able to reshape society. They've been able to move full speed ahead for globalization with almost no consequences. Um, occasionally, there'll be an upsurge and so on. But the subjective factor, in other words, the political organization of people in the United States, independent of these political forces, is very limited. So where will these movements come from? You know, the, if well, the, that, well, there's there's no doubt that at the moment the only shape it's taking is is to do with electoral campaigns of various progressive candidates. I mean, Sanders is one, AOC is another. There's quite a few of them across the country. Um, but if if you're talking about the recent past, I mean, recent decades of the United States. Um, yeah, the, the the majority of people, a slim majority, have are doing have been doing pretty well economically. There's this one number uh, always strikes me. There's actually numerically, or there was before COVID nineteen, as many families with income over a hundred thousand dollars as there were families under thirty thousand um, dollars. A lot of people were getting by enough to avoid the kind of resistance and social unrest you've seen in the United States, even in the 1930s, there's been moments of, of, you know, breakout of a, you know, mass movement, uh, in terms of a protest against the Iraq war, uh, you go back further, like no, in but, 1982. But just there, hold on a second. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, yeah, I know, but let me yeah. finish. Yeah. Okay. I, I know you're not, I know you're not. Um, I don't think you see the objective conditions for the rise of a spontaneous mass movement until you see the kind of conditions there were in the 1930s. And I think we're headed there. Is there, as you say, the subjective factor, the organization, conscious organizational factor? Right now, not much of it. But there wasn't much of it in the 30s either. Uh, and then it grew. Now, I was in Baltimore during the Freddie Gray uprising. And it was only a few days. It was completely spontaneous. There, there was practically no organization at all which is why it didn't last and why in the end they were able to sort of divert it by charging the cops and such. But you, you don't know when these things are going to break out. And if we're into 20, 25% unemployment and that goes on for a few years and people are starving, uh, the United States, who knows? Americans are not used to living like that. This is not a population that's used to going hungry. I mean, a certain percentage does. But, you know, most of the people that are falling into this deep poverty now, they've never gone hungry before. So it, it's a different moment. Do I agree with you that the, the organization uh, for making that movement something cohesive with a conscious plan and so on? Yeah, that's really lacking. But that's a different issue than whether there's conditions for the rise of a spontaneous movement. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, all spontaneous movements don't go to the left or don't go in a good direction. No, no and, doubt. Yeah. No doubt. So, I mean, part of the problem is that in this context, um, you know, when somebody says, well, you know, we'll have a Biden and then a mass movement will rise up to put pressure on him, which may deepen the, the agenda in a progressive direction. I actually worry the opposite will happen. In other words. Um, when Obama came into office, 
you did have a popular upsurge develop. It was the Tea Party attempting to hamper any move to the left. Uh, whether the Tea Party was actually organized from below or it was, you know, derived by big rich donors from above is irrelevant. It, it brought people onto the streets. Uh, you know, whether this is a so-called color revolution or not is actually not important. Eventually, it became a real thing. In fact, the, the fruits of the Tea Party have been driving around the Midwestern states where there's a democratic governor uh, saying, end the lockdown, send us back to work. I mean, you have to look at the state of where people are in the society. You have to understand the culture of that society. In my understanding, inside the United States, the capacity for a progressive politics is simply not there in most of the country. It's there in certain states. Certainly. Yeah, but why? It's not a, just a cultural phenomenon. It's because most people were doing okay economically. And no, the people I don't that think weren't. So. I don't think so. I think it's it's a combination of a couple of things. One of them has to do with race politics, has to do with the insufficient, you know, uh, conclusion of the American problem of so-called race relations or racism. I mean, that's a huge issue um, in a society like this. It's it's an impediment uh, to the development of progressive politics. Um, the race question has morphed from anti-black racism to anti-immigrant racism. It is metastasized into anti-China. I mean, all these things are kind of serial part of the American consciousness that hasn't been directly confronted, you know, neither by um, the liberals nor in a way by the left. You know, there's been no real anti-racist sustained attack from big unions or any of these institutions. They mumble a kind of liberal thing of, you know, we should be tolerant to each other. But that's not the issue. The issue is there's a taproot of resentment and race that needs to be confronted. And until that's dealt with, it's very hard to expect a population or a culture to axiomatically move in a progressive direction. There's only one thing that does that. It's when enough people, white people, white working class, and uh, that are not being singled out or haven't been singled out for super exploitation, are facing the same hunger. Now, I'm not saying that can't be turned into fascism as well. Of course it can. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, I worked, I used to work on the railroad for five years, fixing freight cars. And, uh, you know, my shift was about half white, half black. You know, when did, when we got beyond any, the issue of race is when we went on strike. You know, it was like, because we were all facing the same kind of conditions. So yeah, the, the, right now the white workers think they're better off and think they're better than blacks and so on. And, 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 and let, let me also say this. This is mostly rural white workers and, and to some extent suburban. You know, the Republicans don't win big cities, almost never. And the, uh, if you look at the, you know, how many cities, big cities have become, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, not Mecca. What's the term when they, uh, s when they let immigrants and they refuse to charge them? What's the word for that? Sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities. Yeah. It's very popular in the big cities, which is another reason why I think it's a significant difference between a Biden and a, and a Democratic Party. Not because they aren't beholden to finance, they are, but they're also electorally beholden to the big urban populations that are not as racist, that are not as backward, that are more educated, are frankly to the left of anything in the Democratic Party establishment. You know, on, on, on policy positions, most Democrats agreed with Sanders, and I think many were even to the left of Sanders. 
So uh, to, to just merge this all as if, as if it doesn't matter, because if you have a rise of a movement, and I think we will if the conditions get as bad as we're hearing, then to face fascism, to face guns, to face the militarized police, which is surely what one would see under Trump, he says it openly, versus a Democratic Party that, for one thing, is, is dependent on the big urban populations for electoral support. Uh, and 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 very dependent on the black vote, which is probably where you're going to see the first up, uprisings. I think it's amongst African Americans you usually that spark these things. Certainly, that's what happened in the '60s. The the, the 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 possibility of a real outright overt militarist uh, Trump type of fascism, and if it isn't, it doesn't have to be Trump. It could be someone else that represents that section of capital. You know, if Trump becomes too much of a liability, it could be a Pence, it could be someone else. It's, it's not about him. It's about this, that right-wing aggressive section of capital that politically gets its support from rural areas and to some extent suburbs. Uh, to think that that's not going to be beyond danger, especially at the time of uh, climate change and such, I, I actually don't get that argument. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not exactly sure what we're disagreeing with, honestly. Um, I mean, my feeling well, is that, whether 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 well, I'll I'll say it in a sentence, which I said in the article. I think progressives should defeat Trump, and you can't defeat Trump without voting for Biden and telling people to vote for Biden. But I don't think progressives progressives should ever stop saying Biden is the quote unquote liberal face. Of, of the billionaire class. He's the liberal face of this depraved system and, you know, have no illusions about what, what he is. The same way I said at the time of Obama, you know, I thought people should vote for Obama, but I never stopped saying that, you know, don't expect much from Obama, this, all this optimism about who he was. I mean, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid, but, the, but there is the, the, like I lived in Baltimore for many years and in Maryland, uh, the, the, the difference, even if it's small in terms of the lives of people between a, a Democratic Party a, a run state, as bad as it is in Baltimore, it's better than in states uh, that are run by Republicans. It really is. You can look at the numbers. You can look at how much gets paid for unemployment insurance. You can look at but the kind health care that but, existed. But I, I get it. I mean, this is all just empirical. I mean, the point is that the question you're asking is a question that I think is actually not the conversation. Um, that's what I've been trying to say is that this idea of what should you do in November is not the conversation. Be no, but they're connected no, with let, you. Can't let, build let just, the, you can't build this but, movement but without me, an electoral just, strategy. I get it. But let me just finish what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's actually not the case that November should focus the conversation. The conversation has to start beyond that. In other words... I think if you're a progressive anywhere in the world, you have to ask yourself, what is our project? What are we doing? Um, you know, what is our 20-year project? How are we going to build power in this society? Which are some of the key sectors um, that have been, you know, not able to be organized? You know, what's happening in the U.S. South? I mean, there's got to be a broad project. It's only in the context of having had a broad project discussion that the electoral uh, question should rise. What happens in the American left or in even progressive circles is the same conversation happens every four years 
and it's always at the level of what is the answer on electoralism without having right. the broader question of what's the project. And I think that's why these conversations become quite dull because they're always about November. They're never about, you know, 2040. And I think November can only be an interesting conversation in the context of 2040. Uh, so the real conversation to have is what's the long-term game? Is there a long-term game? Um, is it possible for, you know, if one says, oh, the conditions are getting ripe. I mean, look, the conditions have been ripe for 40 years. Uh, the problem is subjectively no project has emerged in the United States. And that is why I found the both Sanders campaigns uh, both times to be interesting because within something like a Sanders campaign, you have the incubation of a long-term project. You know, I'm not, you know, going to say, oh, it's so great that the Democratic Socialists of America is there and their numbers are increasing. That's fine. The question for the DSA as well is, what is your project? I mean, are we able to articulate a long-term project for these societies? You know, it's the same in Britain. You know, uh, the question was never going to be merely about Corbyn. It was always about what happens to that generation of students from the 2015 uprising that then went and formed the world transformed, uh, that went and became part of momentum. What was their project? You see, the problem for them as well is that they got sucked into this thing. It's about Corbyn and we have to get Corbyn elected. Now, I understand yeah. that. I'm not, I'm not saying to you that the election thing is not important. But if you politically only focus on electoralism, you miss the broader political challenge, which is looking around and saying, why is it that the key classes are either totally uninterested in politics, you know, they've completely withdrawn themselves, or that there's sections of them that have gone deeply into the right. This is both in Britain and in the United States, just as two examples, you know, uh, so many former labor voters voted to leave Europe. Um, people in the kind of liberal end of the labor party were completely, you know, confused by that. Uh, people who used to vote Democratic in the United States became Trump supporters. Liberals are confused by that. I find their confusion, confusion to be perplexing. The, the reason they are confused is because they don't have a sense of where this population is and what a long-term project could be, which takes people's genuine anger and dissatisfaction of being, you know, left out of, of the tide of history and bring them back into the center of history. You've got to have a project for that. You can't just yeah, show let up. Me, let me, yeah. yeah. First of all, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, this article I was writing, that's the second half of the article. Um, the, the, Sanders campaign and AOC, the other progressive campaigns, it's it's the shape of things to come. It's it's the beginning. But I don't think they went nearly far enough in the vision of what a, a different kind of society could be. And I don't think you can actually excite the working class without a broader vision. Yes, health care for all the other kinds of reforms that were be, being talked about, you know, minimum wage. Uh, they're all important and it engages people. But without a bigger vision of what a, a really progressive government would do, um, I don't think you really get excited enough to fight for something bigger. And, and for example, um, even Roosevelt talked about, as I said earlier, the necessity for public ownership. But Sanders almost never talks about it. 
And I, I think the issue of democratization, both in terms of politics and economic power, is, has to be at the heart of this movement. The, uh, and of course, the, the issue of climate. Uh, and, and the Green New Deal is, is the beginning of that kind of articulation. But even in the Green New Deal, as it's been talked about, well, one, it doesn't talk enough about demilitarizing. And two, it, again, doesn't talk enough about public ownership. The, uh, the issue of the fossil fuel uh, sector, uh, you can't regulate it given today's politics, but a vision of nationalizing the fossil fuel sector, nationalizing a, se- a section of the, of the uh, banking sector, uh, obviously the movement is nowhere near capable of achieving those things. But that, that vision, we were talking earlier about BlackRock and, and Vanguard, uh, to how much ownership is concentrated now. Well, what if the government uh, bought a controlling interest in BlackRock? What would that mean in terms of power and influence? The, the, uh, the movement does need to envision a big project of how you democratize politics and economics and, and focus on this issue of a war, on a wartime footing developing a demilitarized Green New Deal, no doubt. But I don't think you can do that without the electoral you know, consciousness, sensibility of it. They both have to be happened. And, I, and I'm certainly not advocating a movement that in any way cedes leadership to the Democratic Party or any section of the elites. It has to be a very independent movement with these, this vision and demands for a different kind of society. On the other hand, I don't think it serves building that movement to minimize the danger of that section of capital Trump represents. Yeah, but but you know, let's not return to that again because the point I would make to that is that I don't actually see in the recent past, um, like for instance, when Obama was in office, I didn't see um, the galvanization of uh, of organizing among people. I mean, partly because there was an insufficient sense. Uh, of a danger, and I'm not saying that you need danger in order to galvanize people. I don't believe that at all. It's just that what happens in American society, it seems to me, is when a Republican is in office, that section of, let's say, let's call it liberals, um, says that the Republicans are terribly dangerous, so you have to come around us, uh, have to galvanize around us. There's no room for third party or independent politics. Line up behind us to confront this very dangerous character or this very dangerous force, they are correct, it is very dangerous, but that's in a way their functional argument, line up behind us. When a Democrat is in power, you're basically shunned to the side and you're called somebody who doesn't play the game or, you know, whatever. But that, that, that didn't always happen. Yes, but I'm talking about now. The, 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 I'm not talking about yeah, but Roosevelt. I, but I, no, but I'm saying, but I, well, take the Vietnam War. I mean, that was started and led by Democrats no, for no, years. No, no, but, and but the, the, the Democratic the, Party of anything before Clinton is no longer the Democratic Party. It's slowly changing with Ilhan Omar, with AOC, um, with a few other people coming. It's slowly. There are, there are sections, credible people who have some mass support beyond the machine emerging. Yes, it's changing, but it's no longer the party, you know, of the 1970s and the ni- even the 1980s. I mean, you take um, the great liberal lions from Ohio and from Massachusetts, they, do, they, they just don't exist anymore. This is yeah, a- but I'm saying that the, the, the last time we had a mass movement at a s- somewhat sustained high level was against, during and against 
Democratic Party presidents. You know, it was essentially against Johnson. If Kennedy had lived, I guess it would have been against Kennedy. But the the mass movement against the Vietnam War, for the for most of it, was against Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party. But the country that we're talking about, the United States, is no longer the United States before when the Soviet Union was around. Uh, it's a very different place. I mean, uh, I would say that the working class is much weakened by globalization, much weakened. You know, in fact, in some ways, working class organizations almost fatally weakened. Uh, when your mm. most powerful unions are in the service sector um, and not in manufacturing, that says something. You know, uh, it tells you a great deal about its ability to actually wield power in society. Um, you know, when in the 1990s, the service sector unions decided instead of using their um, corpus of you know money that they had to go out there and organize people uh, much more horizontally, go out and organize in different sectors, etc. Andy Stern, uh, the leader of one of the biggest service sector unions, decided to put his money to re-elect Democrats. And I think that was a huge mistake because you have no base. You're not expanding your base. Instead of that, you enter electoral politics full steam ahead. So the question of working class power now is definitely not what it was in the 1970s, 60s, 50s, 40s. I mean, at that time, manufacturing was much more robust. Unions played a role. However much you had Lane Kirklands and others selling out trade unions, the working class itself was stronger. It recognized it had strength. Strike activity was very high in the 1970s in the United States, as it was high in Western Europe as well. This is a very different scenario. The reservoirs of the left or of progressivism in North America and in Europe are much depleted. And I think that's where the conversation should always begin. How does one fill those reservoirs again? What are the sections that need to be organized? You know, it's not enough to say um, the big cities in the United States have democratic majorities. That may be true, but remember, these democratic majorities are forced to the polls to vote for people like Rahm Emanuel, you know, who's exactly the opposite of what those democratic majorities believe. Um, it turns out that in many of these democratic states, the governors and the mayors that get elected are very far away from the actual sensibility of the people. You know, look at New York City, you know, Bill de Blasio. I mean, he is removed entirely from the actual aspirations, the issues that New Yorkers seem to tell pollsters they believe in. Very far from that. So what was significant yep. about Sanders isn't that his you know, campaign was about public ownership or not about public ownership. There were two things significant about it. His was a great departure from the general consensus of Democrats. You know, when he talks even about things like fair banking for all, you know, simple issue, a commonsensical issue. You know, when he talks about reinvesting in public education, things like that. I mean, he's basically going against the Democratic consensus. The idea that you need fair banking, you know, the post offices should be a place where that 9-10% of Americans who don't have bank accounts can open some facility or the other. I mean, these are interesting ideas about democratizing basic activity. And they inspired a section of the population. I think these are the two key things. One is he did propose some sort of agenda, which was a significant break from the Democratic Party consensus, particularly on economics. And secondly, he was able to inspire a section of people to form a movement. And I think those two things are significant. I was very disappointed when he decided to walk out of the race. I, you know, it's a classic T.S. Eliot 
uh, line. You know, it ends not with a bang, with a whimper. Uh, almost an apologetic withdrawal. I don't think he was happy with this. I don't think this is something he wanted to do. This was imposed on him by the coronavirus. It was imposed on him by this immense pressure that the Democratic Party establishment uh, put on the campaign, saying, don't repeat what you did to Hillary Clinton. I mean, I don't believe that Bernie Sanders' campaign against Hillary Clinton was the reason for her defeat. I believe the reason for her defeat was that this is also in its culture a sexist, uh, you know, there's great patriarchal, uh, you know, attitudes in this culture. And the fact that, you know, a plurality of white men decided to vote for um, Donald Trump and a majority of white women also voted for Donald Trump. That's another issue. I don't think Bernie Sanders is the one who, who weakened Clinton. I think she also weakened Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree with that. And so on. But yeah. you're being a little contradictory here, if, if I can say. Uh, kind of arguing that nothing's possible in the United States. On the other hand, Sanders and AOC and, and the other progressive candidates have accomplished something. And I agree with that. I think it's very significant what Sanders and AOC no, and others have accomplished. Let me finish. Hang on How did you get the point that I was uh, saying that nothing is possible? Well, that's what I thought you were saying. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay, well, let me finish what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's too bad that the Sanders candidacy didn't happen like a year from now because the, the conditions for most of the people prior to COVID-19, most people thought the economy was on the upswing. Unemployment was relatively low, although that was somewhat deceiving because of the labor participation rate, but still unemployment was relatively low the various surveys on people being optimistic about the economy and so on and so on, all that's changed. And I think like if we were in this campaign now and people start to see what's happening in terms of unemployment and how lousy, you know, utterly incapable the healthcare system is and so on, I think it'd be a very different race. The point I'm making here is that the objective conditions, meaning high unemployment, depression for years, this is something new for the United States, at least probably since the 30s. And the possibility of this building on the Sanders and the other progressive campaigns, yeah, that's where it starts without any question. The only thing I'm arguing is I think there should be even a more progressive vision articulated, not necessarily by Sanders, because I, I mean, I've never had to run for office. So tactically, maybe he's right in how he limits his uh, you know, demands and objectives. But the movement itself, I think, needs to articulate a broader vision of what society could be, which includes a, a much stronger uh, version of public ownership. Um, that being said, I, I'm not sure what we're arguing about, I guess, and maybe we're not when it comes down to it. I think we're in a different moment now. So you can't, you know, you've been saying that, you know, the moment was there for the last 40 years. No, I wasn't. Both the objective conditions and the subjective were not there for the last 40 years. This is something new that we're in now. No, I don't think so. I think that you're looking at it from the eye of the storm of the coronavirus. But if you go back 40 years ago, um, you see that in terms of international capitalism, um, there a serious open crisis begins in the 1970s, which has been papered over for these 40, 40 50 years, papered over largely by... Um, you know, various policies, for, for instance, neoliberalism, austerity, permanent austerity in most of the planet, um, the exporting of the crisis to uh, the developing world, 
you know, you've seen over these decades from the developing world, more money is coming northward than is going southward in aid and so on. Uh, there's a papering over of a long-term crisis. And there's been no significant political force capable as yet uh, of taking this objective crisis and answering it. I mean, the capitalist elites, for instance, have had no solution to the problem. You know, they've gone from one crisis to the other, lurching from one crisis to the other, not able to articulate themselves a new project, you know. And the, the kind of liberal version of that exhausted itself. You know, what was the liberal version of that? It was basically promoting entrepreneurialism. If you're an entrepreneur, you come up with some nice uh, new gadgets or some nice idea, then, you know, the economy will move forward again. I mean, that's hardly a broad project. And I think if you look at um, Sanders's actual campaign uh, demands, if you look at the ones on real Wall Street reform and the one on jobs for all, it's very significant. I mean, he's, for instance, uh, at least calling for a return to Glass-Steagall. Uh, in terms of jobs for all, I thought it was a very huge, you know, quite an ambitious program about, in, you know, this is long before COVID-19, by the way. He was calling for an extension of healthcare jobs, a return of those 250,000 uh, employees that have lost their jobs in healthcare over the last 10 years, an attrition, by the way, right through the Obama period. Um, I thought it was a very bold proposal. Yes, it doesn't use the language of public ownership. But you build towards that. You know, that language has been delegitimized, um, not only in the United States, but in very large parts of the world. It's been delegitimized by the penalty that the left had had to pay for the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. You build towards those ideas. I don't think you have to run and articulate them ahead of building them. So, you know, I think that when you say, oh, it looks like you're saying nothing is possible. I think a lot is possible. But I think the what is possible question is about what your project is. And I think out of something like the Sanders movement or in Britain, very clearly out of the momentum, world transformed, you know, the entry again of unions into active politics after the Blair years, I think they need to articulate a project. You know, what is our project? What kind of vision do we have? How do we go to the doorstop, you know, go house to house articulating this project, inspire people and so on? I mean, that's the way it's going to go if the left wants to have any role in, in society. I think if things get even worse in the United States, if that $10 trillion uh, bathtub plug is not successful and the bathwater keeps running out, if that's the case, I think the right is actually going to be advantaged far more than the left. You're already seeing it. You know, the right understands how to mobilize people on the street. It has more money. It has more capacity. You know, if the left is constantly uh, thinking about elections and not the broader project, uh, it's going to get outflanked by the right. So actually, I fear that whether it's a Biden or Trump presidency after November, if the situation deepens in a bad way, the right is going to be advantaged in both cases. Now, if there's a Biden presidency, maybe they can use the forces of the state uh, to disarm people or to you know prevent uh, anything getting out of hand. But let's also remember that it was under Clinton that they attempted to do this you know with the uh, right-wing militia, the Michigan militia and so on. They got burned in Oklahoma and then they basically just let them exist. You know, if you see the growth of these militias from the early 90s to the present, it's terrifying. Uh, they are yeah. a terrifying you know, force in American society. But but I in my mind, 
there's no question that the use of coercive force will be far worse under Trump. I'm not saying it doesn't exist under Biden. That being said, the Democratic Party is not monolithic either. Uh, you know, Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, actually came to the, the defense of some of the black civil rights uh, activists while they were sitting in Alabama jails. Uh, in the Democratic Party, you have splits. Uh, but Schumer uh, again, and his, again let me, let, let, no, hang, hang on a second. Paul, you always hang go back to a previous era. Come well, to let me era. finish what I'm saying. Yeah. Hang on, hang on. Yeah. I won't go back to a previous era. There was a split in the Democratic Party over the deal with Iran. Chuck Schumer and his gang were against it. They were in the same uh, boat with the uh, uh, right-wing Republicans. Uh, the, the There's differences. Biden supported that deal. Uh, Schumer did not, and other, Schumer's allies did not. Uh, th there are fractures and differences, and, and they, may, they do matter because within these small fractures and differences creates some room for movements to operate. You know, it's going to be pretty hard to organize a mass movement when they use the pandemic as an excuse, and I'm even more concerned, frankly, with uh, some false flag uh, terrorist attack that allows them to attack Iran. Uh, in, in wartime conditions, plus pandemic conditions, a, a second Trump administration, there's going to be great difficulty organizing openly. Uh, these things do matter. Uh, You're still there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. So, uh, mm. yeah, I mean, I'm not denying that. It's just that, you know, we're again returning to the same conversation, which is... Well, because to me, they're linked. Yeah, well, I mean, but it's now we are sort of spiraling back to the beginning because it's not that they don't matter. The question is, what's the left's agenda going to be? You know, okay, do you want me to say there should be a Biden presidency? Is that the is that what one has to say in order to have the bigger question? I'm not willing to have that as a litmus test to have the bigger question. I'd prefer to have the bigger discussion. Uh, I think... This is a flawed way to go, which is to say, well, don't you agree that Biden must be supported uh, first and let's get that out of the way and then let's talk about the bigger discussion. I no, think, no, I don't. I, that's not how that's, I would that, frame that's it. The, that's been the tenor of the conversation. Let's. I let's, agree let's with you, agree. but that's not let's, how I but shouldn't but be. That has been our whole conversation. Let's agree. No, no, no. I've been, that, no, the, I've been that saying Trump all is of... worse than Biden and Biden is bad for sure, but Trump is worse than Biden. Uh, one needs Biden in the White House. No, no, then, no, 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 no. But th that's how you're I read. Vulgar, that's, that, but I you're read vulgarizing what I said. Okay, but that's no, how I'm, I'm seeing... saying. First of all, first of all, first of all, we're dealing with different sections of capital. It's not about Biden or Trump. Trump represents a section of capital. Biden represents a different section of alliances with of capital. Uh, so it's not just about these guys as individuals. Although there's part of it, it's not like individuals don't matter but it's, it's about the section of capital they represent. Um, and I'm not saying that there should be uh, any, uh, uh, quite the contrary. I don't think you can build a movement without talking about the broader project, the broader vision, building on the uh, achievements of the Sanders and other progressive campaigns. Uh, but, but that is, but you can't then, I don't think, conclude that it makes no difference. You don't need to take a position on Biden versus Trump. Uh, th these two things are completely connected. That's why I keep coming back to that, because I don't think you can, the broader vision, where's the broader vision if there's a police state? Right. So uh, 
I mean, frankly, I, I just think that this is this is the reason why the American left, uh, actually the Atlantic left doesn't advance um, because it spends its entire time talking about the next election, uh, which is fine. And people should have that conversation. But I, I find that to be an unhelpful conversation. I find the more interesting conversation is what's the opportunity to build a project for the long term? Um, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I, I know that this is like an MSNBC thing. You know, what should happen in November? And, you know, Nina Tandon sitting in one chair and somebody from the Sanders campaign and another, and they're just talking about November. November is the end of history. But I don't think November is the end of history. And in saying that if it's a police state after November, it is the end of history. That's precisely what you're saying, which is, well, you know, you can't organize in a police state. So what happens in November is either the end of history or it's a possibility of continuing history. But I don't actually well, agree I... that that's the, the situation. I think that um, if Trump is reelected, there still will be contradictions in the system. I don't think you're going to need, you know, to have a kind of vision of, of oh, my God, it's going to. I mean, for a lot of people in this country, and I don't know if you read the BBC story on the Smithfield um, plant in South Dakota where there was an outbreak of COVID-19, for a lot of people, they're totally disarmed politically already. And the sense that it's going to be worse in a future period, I don't think is credible for them. They are already totally disarmed. They have no political instruments with them in many parts of this country. So the question is, how do you create people's confidence? How do you build organizations? How do you create a project? I think that, to me, is always the more interesting conversation. Um, what happens in November? Okay, I mean, you know, I'm not willing to take that test and say, yes, I support X or Y. I would say that I was very disappointed that Sanders had to drop out of the race. Um, I think that Biden is going to end up very much like uh, his predecessors, which is John Kerry and um, uh, Mondale. Uh, I very much doubt that uh, he is going to have an easy run against Mr. Trump, even if the situation deteriorates. And I think if he gets elected, he's also going to confront the fact that the far right is a very dangerous force in this society and it's organized and ready to be out on the street with its guns. I don't think that changes. I mean, Trump said that before um, the election that first you know, elected him. He said that either way, my people are there and they're on the street and they have guns. I mean, this, these people are extraordinarily dangerous, whether in or out of the White House. And how to defeat them, I don't think is simply a question of November. Well, no doubt. I'm, I'm not suggesting it is, but I'd certainly rather fight them without Trump being the commander in chief. And two, yeah, there is a bit of end of history here. I don't think we're in a normal moment here. And that's not because of COVID-19. It's because of the climate crisis. Uh, you know, if, if there's less than a decade before we're hitting, you know, more than the 1.5 degrees and probably hitting the two degree warming, you know, by what, 2040 or something, yeah, another four years of an outright climate denier without any possibility of a national plan on climate, as 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 I said earlier, as as modest and limited as Biden will do, given his how beholden he is to fossil fuel and finance. There's there's a possibility a movement could move it, and at least there's a recognition that there is such a thing as uh, the climate change crisis. Yeah, I, I don't think this is a normal moment. And, and, and there's kind of an end of history, yeah, because we're going to head into a period where the climate change crisis is un, un, 
practically irreversible. I mean, you know, look, <laughs> I think that Obama's, and I'm going to have to leave in a little bit, but I, I mean, yeah, we're reaching. Yeah, we're reaching. I mean, the end look, here. here you have Obama who walks into the meeting in Copenhagen and basically tells most of the developing countries either you sign up or you know you'll face the consequences. I mean, I think Obama was able to very cleverly sell to liberals that he was in favor of mitigating the climate in some way. Actually, in those meetings in Copenhagen, um, U.S. negotiators throughout the whole period strong-armed countries of the South essentially tried to say that India and China are the ones that are um, the real scofflaws here and so on. I don't think Obama was genuinely moving an agenda to deal with climate change. Okay, he's not a total denier, but the end result was the same. The United States essentially uh, was basically blocking any advancement on the climate negotiations that came out of Paris. Basically, they were blocking it. They were unwilling to recognize the Rio principles uh, of differential but equal um, commitment, you know, the fact that some countries were going to need technology transfer, that there needed to be some sort of fund system to deal with this. All of that, the United States basically just mocked and, and turned away and tried to say, well, you know, other countries are as much at fault and so on. So, I mean, I mean, again, it, one goes back and forth point by point, but that's not the point. The point is where I think we are seeing things differently. And I think there's no point arguing the case further, is that I don't believe that uh, second Trump presidency is the end of history. I think it's catastrophic. I think U.S. imperialism in general is catastrophic. I mean, in one of the debates that Mr. Biden uh, had with Sanders and others, he said so boldly what he would do uh, to Venezuela. You know, if you're a Venezuelan, you earlier said if you're an Iranian, it's a big difference. If you're a Venezuelan, there's no difference whether it's a Biden presidency or a Trump presidency. You know, there's a kind of gangsterish attitude that will come to countries like that, whoever's sitting in the White House. But again, that's not the point that I'm interested in. I'm interested in the point, how do you build a genuinely progressive movement, build a progressive majority in the Atlantic countries that's able to supplant uh, both the very far right noxious kind of characters um, whose standard bearer now is Mr. Trump, and on the other side, to supplant this sort of pseudo-liberal kind of thing that the Democratic Party has begun, a uh, kind of pleasant face of the ruling elites. Uh, I think one needs to think of a project to supplant both. And I feel that the conversations every four years about uh, the election uh, prevents people from having the deeper conversation, uh, for understanding how to, you know, to some extent, break away from this, you know, I mean, it's an umbilical cord attachment to the Democratic Party that needs to be really thought out. You're not going to solve this at the presidential level. You're going to solve this, you know, sending much more progressive people to the U.S. Congress and so on from rotten seats where by rotten, I mean it in the British sense where there's no challenger, you know, where the Democratic Party basically has an open lane to send people to Congress, there's no reason for there not to be left challengers in those seats, sending more left people to Congress, putting forward a much more robust agenda in front of the people and see where it goes. I mean, unless you're thinking in that long term, I think we'll be stuck again in a debate that happens, you know, every four years, sometimes every two years. And it's an exhausting and unproductive debate. Okay, you get the last word. <laughs> 
I agree with most of that last speech. Not all of it, but most of it. All right. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks a lot. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis Podcast.
All right. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks a lot. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis Podcast.